Welcome, everybody, to a special episode of Palm Peeps. Four weeks ago, if you're following along, we posted a radiology round about a case of a patient with pulmonary arterial hypertension with mixed connective tissue disease and hypoxemia due to suprasystemic right-sided pressures and right-to-left shunting. We heard a lot about a discussion about this case, which we love. Uh, and today we have two experts on to shed a little more light and give us some important right heart cath pearls that we neglected to mention in the case. So I'm really excited for this discussion. Me too, Firf. We love to hear all of your thoughts about our cases and episodes, and I'm so excited to talk about this more today and looking forward to a great discussion. So today, Firf, you and I are joined by two fantastic guests. First, we have Dr. Allison Sal. Allison is the first cardiologist we're having on Palm Peeps, but we're not going to hold that against her. Allison is an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and is an interventional cardiologist working at the Boston VA and Brigham and Women's Hospital. She specializes in adult congenital heart disease and is the assistant director of the Translational Discovery Lab at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Welcome to Palm Peeps today, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. I am honored to be the first cardiologist um, and I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Great. I'm sure you won't be the last. Uh, next, we have Steve Matai. Steve is an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital and the director of the inpatient pulmonary service there. He specializes in pulmonary hypertension and his research focuses on scleroderma-associated PAH. He also spurred my initial interest in pulmonary vascular disease and also inspired me to really work on my karaoke game, which I, I still strive to meet his uh, quality. Welcome uh, to Palm Peeps, Steve. Thanks for having me. Excited to have this discussion. And I'd like to remind uh, Allison that it's called pulmonary hypertension. You have your own hypertension to deal with. <laughs> well, I definitely anticipate a fun-filled discussion ahead. Okay, just for a reminder, the radiology rounds we posted that spurred this conversation can be found online at our website on pulmpeeps.com or on our Instagram or our Twitter accounts. As a reminder, it was a case of a woman in her 50s with GERD, Raynaud's, and multiple positive autoantibodies who presented with progressive dyspnea on exertion. She had no evidence of interstitial lung disease on her imaging, but had multiple signs of pulmonary hypertension on her chest CT, and her echo showed severe RV dilation and RV dysfunction, and she had an estimated pulmonary artery systolic pressure of 87 millimeters of mercury. She also had a positive bubble study with early transitive bubbles. She underwent a right heart cath, which showed severe pulmonary hypertension. She had a right atrial pressure of 15, an RV systolic pressure of 106, and her RV EDP was 20. She had a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 73, and her wedge pressure was 21. Her cardiac output was measured using thermodilution, and PVR was calculated to be 15.8. So overall, this was consistent with severe pH that was mostly precapillary, but the elevated wedge indicated a postcapillary component as well. All right. Well, after this case, we had a lot of discussion uh, online, which we love. And then something happened that you always hope when you have a podcast and you're posting things, two people that you like, deeply respect and have learned from called you and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> it makes no sense. No, which I really love. So seriously, there are a lot of pros and cons of being on medical Twitter and podcasting. And this is absolutely the best part. You, know, you share cases and you learn lessons together and then experts in the field can dive in and give you a little bit more uh, details and, and some pearls to take away from it. So to dive into the discussion, Allison, can you start by telling us 
uh, what we do in a standard right heart cath, like what values we're measuring, how the procedure goes, what we're measuring, what we're calculating. I'll be happy to. So a, a right heart cath, the basics of that is you're going to use some type of flow-mediated catheter, typically, which means there's a balloon on the end. Some of you might know it as a Swan-Gans catheter. And you're going to get access in a, either a peripheral vein or a central vein. And you're going to float that catheter through all of the, you know, the right-sided heart structure. So that's typically starting in the SVC or the IVC, depending on where you're coming from. I always like to get into both and we'll get into why. Um, we'll float that through the right atrium, into the right ventricle, out into the main PA, and then ideally into the left and right pulmonary arteries. You can then use that balloon tip to wedge that in there, and you're going to create a static fluid column that will give you an estimate of your downstream left atrial pressure. And that's kind of the mechanics of what you do. Then the next part is what do we do with that information? What are we able to measure and how do we interpret all this stuff? And that's, this is the fun stuff. Um, so we can basically measure two things in the cath lab um, with, this, with this catheter. We can get pressures, which is easy. We have a hole in the end of that and we can measure the pressure in each chamber that we're in. And then you can get a blood sample and you can do whatever with that blood sample you choose to do. But for our purposes today, when we're talking about defining the system or the circuit, we're gonna get oxygen levels, so oxygen saturations for that blood sample that you're obtaining. What you want to do is define the circuit that you're interested in, and I'm talking to a bunch of pulmonologists here, and this is, I, I do a lot of pH as well. I want to define the circuit through, the cardiovascular circuit through the pulmonary circulation. So you need to do a little bit of physics, and this is where my fellows always roll their eyes because I just say, get ready to do some math. So if you go back to basic physics and we're trying to define a circuit, we're going to think of Ohm's law. A voltage equals your current through that circuit times the resistance of that circuit. So if we translate that to a hemodynamic or fluid system, we're going to change that voltage to a driving pressure. In this case, when we're thinking about the pulmonary circulation, it's going to be the transpulmonary gradient, which you guys know a lot about. And then the instead of a current, it's going to be the flow through the pulmonary circuit. This is going to be important. This is QP, all right? Well, I'll remember that. And then your resistance is your pulmonary vascular resistance. Monty, I, already, I, I know you're excited about this. So then you're going to tell me, well, we measured pressures and you got oxygen saturations. How are we going to define this circuit? So pressures are easy. You're able to get measure your pressures, get your driving pressure. Oxygen saturations become really important when we're going to translate that into flow. That is what we're going to use in order to estimate or maybe directly derive our flow through that system, our QP. And this is utilizing the Fick equation, which hopefully you guys all remember from medical school. Um, and what you're doing with the Fick equation is you're trying to is you're saying I'm going to assume either estimate or directly measure an oxygen consumption, and then I'm going to know a content of something on either end, going in, the content of something going in, content of something coming out. In this case, it's going to be oxygen. Oxygen going into the system, into our arterial circulation, going through the body, getting extracted and being consumed at some, at some amount per unit of time. And then I'm going to measure my end content, which is my venous or my mixed venous oxygen um, saturation or content. If I know my content on either side of something, my consumption through the middle, I'm going to be able to derive my flow that's going through there. So I can use my saturations to measure a flow. I've measured my pressures, and then I'm going to be able to define my pulmonary vascular resistance. I hope that works. The other, um, the other measurement that you can sometimes get, and I know we're going to talk about this, is a thermodilution. With a certain catheter, you can directly measure 
a flow through a system that you're in based on your catheter that is temperature dependent. Um, so I will say that's the caveat. There's one other measurement you might be able to use if your circuit allows that to be used. It's great. That's a great review. And I also even love the pearl already that, you know, I think we always say V equals IR, pressure equals cardiac output times resistance, but being really precise, it's, it's QP. That's what we're thinking about the flow through the pulmonary system, not just exactly. general cardiac output. This is great, great already. Yeah, I definitely agree. And thank you for walking us through that, Allison. I appreciate you taking us back to some basic physiology, but the main thing that stood out to me was with you being my ACS when I was a senior resident, I would have never imagined rolling my eyes at you. I think that just happened in the office and I I just felt it, felt it happening. Yeah, I think you're probably right with that. Well, thank you again for reviewing some of the basic physiologic principles that will be important for our further discussion. Now we can imagine that the right heart cath has just been completed and we get a lot of numbers to look at. Steve, can you comment on how you approach looking at the results of a right heart cath and if you have a specific systematic approach that you think has been helpful in your practice? Sure. Thanks, Monty. So I, I think the, the first step is to understand the indication for the right heart catheterization. Was the study done to look for pulmonary hypertension, which in the situations in which I'm uh, evaluating a patient, that's most commonly the, the, the scenario. So in that, through that lens, the first question is, well, does the patient have pH? And since pH is defined as a mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, that's the first number I'm going to look at just to know whether or not this patient actually has pulmonary hypertension. The next step would be to look at the hemodynamic profile. Are we dealing with a pre-capillary, post-capillary, or combined pre-post-capillary hemodynamic profile? So to remind you, pre-capillary would be a mean PA of greater than 20 with a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of less than or equal to 15 millimeters of mercury and a PVR greater than three wood units. Post-capillary would be a mean PA greater than 20, a wedge greater than 15, and a PVR less than three. And then combined pre-post-capillary would be a mean PA greater than 20, a wedge greater than 15, and a PVR greater than three. I think one of the components of that, looking at the hemodynamic profile, since the wedge pressure is really important here to distinguish between these different hemodynamic profiles, is to actually look at the wedge tracing. Um, And that's something that that is readily available at our institution. The the, uh, tracings are uploaded to our system and we're able to review them. And I think that's an important part. You know, you want to make sure that you believe what the wedge tracing interpretation is. And then I'm sure Allison will talk about the importance of, of confirming wedge tracings by perhaps looking at saturations, wedge saturations, which are another value that can be obtained during a, a right heart catheterization to ensure that you are, in fact, uh, getting a, a good wedge uh, tracing. The next thing I would, I would look at would, would be the severity of the pulmonary hypertension. So we have, the, our, our patient does have pulmonary hypertension. We've defined their hemodynamic profile. How severe is it? And those uh, determinations are based upon several of the measurements that Allison referenced. Number one would be the mean pulmonary pressure, um, although there com- that comes with a caveat. Your mean pulmonary pressure can be very, very high, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, systemic pressures, in fact. But sometimes the severity of pulmonary hypertension can be uh, quite significant with a low mean pulmonary pressure. And that, that uh, reflects advanced disease with, with uh, significant impairment of cardiac function and a low cardiac output cardiac index. So I'll look at the mean pulmonary pressure. I will look at cardiac output and cardiac index. 
I'll look at PA saturation, pulmonary saturation, to confirm that there is a there's concordance between the cardiac output, cardiac index, and PA saturation. And then I'm going to uh, calculate a pulmonary vascular resistance uh, if it's not reported, and obviously double check to make sure those numbers are correct to understand uh, the severity of of the pulmonary hypertension with which we are dealing. The next thing I would do systematically would be nuanced. So I would look at the filling pressures. What are the right-sided filling pressures, the left-sided filling pressures? What is the relationship between right atrial pressure and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure? So pericardial constraint can be present and is often common in decompensated left heart failure, right heart failure. But even in, in more stable states, there can be influence on cardiac function from pericardial constraint. So the relationship between right atrial pressure and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is important. The closer that ratio gets to one, the more likely you're going to have some impact of pericardial constraint on cardiac function. I'll also, in that scenario, think about looking at the RV tracings. So if there is um, what we call equalization of pressures, if the right atrial pressure and the diastolic uh, uh, right ventricular pressure and the wedge pressure all kind of look similar, uh, similarly, then you uh, may be in a situation where you're dealing with, with uh, constrictive or restrictive disease. And in the right clinical scenario, it's important to evaluate that. Now, right heart catheterization is not the gold standard necessarily for that. You'd want a right and a left heart catheterization, but there can be signs uh, on these tracings, particularly in the right ventricle, that can be useful if that is a consideration. And then the last thing uh, that I would look at would be, have any maneuvers been done? So uh, the maneuvers can range from uh, passive leg raise, which uh, parenthetically, I'll say a, a nice publication came out uh, this week in uh, Cirque Heart Failure, describing the utility of passive leg raise to exclude occult HEFPEF in patients who underwent right heart catheterization. Uh, so uh, I think that's a, a useful, um, potentially useful maneuver that is pretty easy to do. Um, was there an exercise challenge? Was there a acute vasoreactive challenge or vasoreactivity challenge, which I think we're going to talk about later? But those are the types of things I would look for next. And then the interpretation of the catheterization would depend upon which study was done and um, what those results showed. That's great. So I guess my approach of just looking at PA mean is uh, not good enough. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I, I think that one great point and something that we definitely are going to talk about again is the waveforms. I feel like we don't spend enough time on that in uh, probably medical school and residency, and it's so important. All right. So in this case, uh, we had a, the patient also put up some numbers from when they got inhaled nitric oxide in the cath lab. Uh, the pulmonary artery pressures went from 111 over 52 with a mean of 73 to 88 over 37 with a mean of 55 with getting inhaled nitric oxide. With that, the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure did not increase and actually decreased slightly to 18. And the cardiac output increased on our measurement with thermodilution from 3.3 to 5 liters per minute. The pulmonary vascular resistance also decreased from 15.8 to 7.4 Woods units. So after sharing this, Steve, you reached out to say, so why did you do INO in this case? And I think that's a great question to explore. Um, so can you first tell us what is the purpose of doing a vasodilator study uh, while you're doing a right heart cath? Very good question. I, I think that 
sometimes we get caught up in the terminology and we um, think about vasoreactive testing through um, different lenses, but use the same terminology. So vasoreactivity testing in the eyes of the evaluation of pulmonary hypertension is really to identify patients who may be long-term responders to calcium channel blocker therapy. And that's a different vasoreactivity testing than Allison might do in the cath lab for a patient with heart failure, with HEF-REF, in which you the patient's being considered for a heart transplant and you want to understand better whether the pulmonary vascular uh, component of their disease is reversible, meaning that that patient might be a, a candidate for, for heart transplant. Because if the pulmonary vascular resistance is above a certain threshold, there are potential complications that would potentially preclude that patient as a candidate for heart transplant. But that's a separate topic. So through this lens, thinking about vasoreactivity testing, it's really to indicate long-term responders or to identify long-term responders to calcium channel blockers. And the indications are really restricted to patients who have PAH, so their precapillary pulmonary hypertension, but also have um, no evidence of, of significant interstitial lung disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, chronic thromboembolic disease, left heart disease, hemoglobinopathy, any of those other things that can lead to a, a precapillary a phenotype or even pulmonary hypertension in general. And specifically, because uh, studies have, have borne this out, re restricted to patients who are, have idiopathic PAH, anorexigen-associated PAH, or heritable PAH. So anyone with associated PAH, connective tissue disease, schistosomiasis, congenital heart disease, portopulmonary, whatever is the underlying etiology of their PAH, research has borne out that they are unlikely to have sustained response to calcium channel blocker therapy, even if acutely they demonstrate vasoreactivity. So the purpose, identify these patients, and, and the indication is really for those three categories, idiopathic PAH, anorexigen-associated, and heritable PAH. That's great, Steve. And I think remembering the three indications for vasoreactivity testing in pH, as you mentioned, one being idiopathic, two being anorexigen-induced, and three being heritable pH is an easy framework to think about. So now that we know why we want to get vasoreactivity testing, Steve, can you walk us through how you approach interpreting the results? Sure. So most commonly, um, when we talk about vasoreactivity testing, in most cath labs, inhaled nitric oxide is used to uh, for this challenge. And typically, the the uh, dose of inhaled nitric oxide is 20 to 40 uh, parts per million inhaled for five minutes uh, through a, a face mask, and then the uh, testing is done while patients are are inhaling the uh, inhaled nitric oxide. What we're looking for is compared to the resting results, meaning the results without inhaled nitric oxide that there is a decrease in the mean pulmonary pressure of greater than 20% to less than 40 millimeters of mercury. Okay, so someone starts at 50 and they go to 35, that criterion is fulfilled. There should be no increase in pulmonary capillary wedge pressure and no significant change in cardiac output or cardiac index. So those are kind of the three components 
that we look at. If you meet all three of those criteria, then you're said to have a positive vasodilator response or acute vasoreactivity uh, testing. I, I think if we go back to this case, while the pressures did drop significantly from a mean PA of 73 to 55, and the wedge pressure did not increase, and the cardiac output increased, uh, those numbers taken together might be considered a positive response. But the fact that the patient's mean PA did not drop below 40 is significant here. Um, so I think that that does not mean this patient had an acute vasoreactive uh, uh, re response here, a positive response. And the second thing is, with the uh, wedge pressure being elevated like it was, there are some risks involved. Thanks, Steve. And I do have two follow-up questions. My first question is, why should we have caution with doing vasoreactivity challenges? As in, what are some potential negative effects? And my second question is, what is a standard dose of inhaled nitric oxide for these tests? And is there any specific reason why increasing the dose would be warranted? Yeah, so it's not recommended to do that. The guidelines suggest between 20 and 40 parts per million is adequate. And where most people who are going to demonstrate this vasoreactive response, we're going to see it at, at those levels. There's a risk at 80 parts per million of inducing pulmonary edema. Higher doses of INO in patients who have, uh, specifically those who might even have a cult HFPEF, so perhaps you could do a passive leg raise first and see if they if you think they might have a cold path path. In, in any case, those patients, uh, patients who have perhaps pulmonary veno-occlusive disease, pulmonary capillary hemangiomatosis, or other underlying diseases in which wedge pressures might be elevated, they're at risk of pulmonary edema. And it's it's real, it happens. So you want to make sure that that you you're not giving those, you're not putting those patients in a bad situation. There are things you want to think about is the patient in front of you. One thing that I would be concerned about, because this patient sounds like they're very sick, is, you know, what was the systemic pressures when they came into the cath lab? If the systolic blood pressure is less than 90, if the cardiac index in this case is less than 2, um, those types of things are generally considered contraindications to using inhaled nitric oxide. So even if someone fulfills that criteria, you think they have idiopathic PAH, you may want to take a step back and not give them inhaled nitric oxide challenge at that point until you get them stabilized and get them in a more in a safer hemodynamic situation, then bring them back to the cath lab and do the testing at that point. And I guess, you know, one step further back would be, you know, if this if I saw this patient, I would say, okay, there are a couple of reasons why I might not want to do a, a challenge in this patient. Number one, underlying MCTD diagnosis. So I'm not sure that inhaled nitric oxide is going to be useful because there's not going to be an indication to give this patient calcium channel blocker therapy long-term anyway um, for pulmonary hypertension indication. Um, the wedge is high, so that would be a concern of me inducing pulmonary edema. I guess well, th th those are the two kind of major considerations I would have. Now, one thing, Christina, that I'll, I'll talk about, even though you didn't ask me about it, is... <laughs> What do we do with these patients? Well, I've been saying that, that the reason to do an inhaled, an inhaled nitric oxide challenge or a vasoreactivity challenge is to determine who may be a long-term responder to calcium channel blockers. If patients fit the three criteria I mentioned, drop in mean PA greater than 20% and to less than 40 millimeters of mercury, no change in wedge pressure, no decrease in cardiac output or cardiac index, 
then those patients may be long-term responders of calcium channel blockers. And it tends to be high-dose calcium channel blocker therapy. These are people who are on diltiazem or nifedipine at doses that usually get you a call from the pharmacy saying, are you crazy? Like, why are you giving this patient this high of a dose of medication? That being said, what the, our protocols are and what is recommended in guidelines is that you start patients on, on lower doses, you titrate them up until their maximum tolerated dose usually takes about three months or so, and then you recast them. And you want to make sure that their pressures have normalized. In these patients who are true vasoreactive uh, PAH patients, their pressures should normalize or near normalize after you get them a maximum tolerated dose of calcium channel blocker therapy. If at that point they haven't, you can push the dose of calcium channel blocker higher and recast them but it is mandatory that you recath them at one year to make sure they've maintained this response. Because unfortunately, 50% of the patients whom you identify as having an initial acute vasoreactive positive test, they lose it at a year. In which case, you have to treat those patients like you would treat any other PAH patients, putting them on agents that target the endothelial nitric oxide or prostacyclin pathways. That's great. I love that, Steve. Thanks for walking us through. And I think it's so important to remember why. Like you've mentioned a couple of times indications and what you're looking for. Because I think uh, a lot of people think we're doing INO in the cath lab to see how they would respond to those three therapies when that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for vasoreactivity for a whole different purpose. And that's a really uh, you know important distinction to remember. Totally agree, Firf. And I can still remember asking Steve the indication for vasoreactivity challenges several years ago during one of his core conferences, and I can say that his answer has not changed. Um, I think it's so helpful to understand why we are doing a test, you know, how to correctly interpret the results, and how our management can change for a patient based on um, all three of those things. I do want to switch topics a bit because, Allison, I know after you saw our post, you offered a word of warning about using thermodilution for determining cardiac output when there's concern for a shunt. Can you elaborate on that a bit further and recommend what approach uh, could be used instead? So the first thing to know is how the test is done, right? For a thermodilution measurement, um, we talked about it earlier, it, It's you're going to look for a temperature change. So you have a catheter that's sitting, usually from your right IJ, sitting down through SBC, RA, RV, out to the PA, and then in one of your branch PAs. You're going to take a bolus of room temperature saline and push it through that catheter, and there's an embedded thermistor within these catheters that we can use for thermodilution. So there's a whole bunch of computer inputs that you can put into your system that, you know, what brand uh, catheter you're using, what volume you're going to infuse, and then there's going to be a temperature change across that. It hooks up to whatever hemodynamic monitoring system you use in your cath lab, um, and it will output uh, a flow that it got based on the temperature change across the usually 15 to 20 centimeter segment of catheter that it's sensing. So there are a lot of components to that, but the main thing is that you're looking at a temperature change across a known length. You can imagine if there's a hole somewhere, and you showed that beautiful echo imaging uh, with, with obvious right to left shunt, if half of your cold bolus is crossing over from the right atrium where you're injecting it and going over to the left atrium, your temperature change out at your sensor, which is hanging out in your PA, is, is going to be totally bogus. So your, your, your temperature change value for thermodilution in the setting of shunt 
means nothing. And that's if it, there's right to left shunt, which we had at the beginning of this case, right? She was desaturated peripherally. You can also imagine that the reverse is true, right? If there is significant blood coming from left to right and your left atrial warm blood is coming into your right atrium and further diluting that cold bolus that you just put into the right atrium, again, totally bogus. You're not going to have an accurate temperature change that reflects that flow. Overall, if there's shunt, thermodilution really goes out the window. That's that's great. And I think uh, always an important thing to remember, because I feel like I always hear these opinions about thick, you have to use thick, you have to use thermodilution, but the limitations yeah. to remember for it. So more broadly, if you're in the cath lab and you have a concern for shunt, either because you have an echo before or clinically, or you know it's a new, new patient that you're evaluating, what special things do we do uh, in that situation? So what you can do in the cath lab is measure a whole bunch of oxygen saturations, right? I told you, you can sample blood from anywhere. So what you want to find is kind of an unperturbed blood sample of venous return that is going to give you an accurate assessment or quantification of the oxygen content in the venous system. So you need an accurate mixed venous O2 content, right? And you guys all know this. You can answer those test questions. Normally, that will be out in the pulmonary artery when your SVC, IVC, coronary sinus blood, those are your three main influencers of your mixed venous O2 set, has well mixed. You want to find a nice mixing chamber. It's not the right atrium. That's where they're all coming in. But you want to find a distal mixing chamber. In the setting of a shunt at the atrial level or any other level, you need to find another spot. You need to be more proximal. And you don't have a mixed chamber. So you need to be able to calculate that. So we'll get an SVC set, an IVC set, then you're going to estimate your mixed venous O2 set. And in order to do that, we use the FLAM equation. And it's going to heavily weight your SVC set. And partially because it's derived from congenital literature, you can imagine in children, there's more blood flow in their brain. You just look at body size versus head size. But it's three times your SVC plus your IVC divided by four. That's going to give you your best assessment of your mixed venous O2 set and what you should use in relation to your arterial sample to estimate your systemic flow, your QS. And remember, this is your QS. We talked about QP before. But when we're using mixed venous oxygen saturation, your systemic venous sat, that is reflective of the oxygen that has been removed from the rest of your body, your systemic circulation. So then we have an arterial sat and a mixed venous O2 sat to get our estimated FIC. So when you use a FIC, you need to have some measure of your oxygen consumption. We frequently, we use estimated values either based on body surface area, height, weight, various things, but you'll have an, an estimated O2 consumption and those values to calculate a QS. That's the first part. We can also use a metabolic cart when we really wanna be specific with these patients to get an accurate O2 consumption. The next thing you need to do, and this is where it's hard to describe with words, and I really love a whiteboard or a chalkboard for this, but you need to calculate your relative flows between your pulmonary circulation and your systemic circulation. So your QPQS is a effective ratio of flows. And you can think of that, is the pulmonary flow more or is the systemic flow more? And that's going to change what that fraction is. So in the setting of significant right to left shunt, like in your patient, just think about it. So more of the blood flow from the veins are crossing over and going into the red blood circulation. So there's less flow going through your pulmonary circulation compared to your systemic circulation because say half of that is crossing through and going over to the red side. 
Thus, your arterial SAT was only 86%. In that situation, QPQS is less than one. What we can do in order to measure that directly is use your arterial SAT, your mixed venous O2 SAT, divide that difference by your pulmonary vein SAT minus your PA SAT. I like to draw these two things as two circuits. They're going to be in parallel, and it's really easy. Maybe we could put a figure up on, on your website to look at Definitely. where you're measuring your SATs and the ratio of these two things that will allow you to calculate the relative flows or that QPQS ratio. That's great. And then I, I think this is great. We should definitely put pictures up. It'll be helpful. And then you already said it. So your QPQS, your, our pulmonary flow over our systemic flow, if it's less than one, it's a right to left shunt. And then just to for our learners, so we're being uh, totally explicit about it, what does it mean if the QPQS is one? And what if it means if it's you know two or, or greater than that? So if your QPQS is one, then you have very balanced flow. It doesn't mean that there's not a hole and it's just perfectly balanced. It just means that your relative flows are exactly the same. So in that situation, you can use your thermodilution as your as your pulmonary as your QP. You can use it as your QS. You can just use them interchangeable, and it makes it really easy. If they're not, it, um, if your QPQS is two, then that says that you have two times the pulmonary blood flow compared to your systemic flow. And that means by definition that you have a left to right shunt and you need to be really specific because I know Dr. Matai is going to ask me and he needs a really accurate PVR assessment, right? So if you had a systemic flow that was only 2.5 based on your estimated FIC, but your QPQS was two, then your, your denominator for your PVR, right, is actually two times 2.5, it's five. So your denominator gets much bigger and you can imagine your PVR falls. So a really accurate assessment of what that PVR is, is important. Well, this has been an awesome 45 minutes. Uh, loved sort of delving even more into this case. And can I ask a question about this case, Dave? Sorry. Please, go ahead. Yeah, so just th think about what, what happened, right? So she went on INO, right? So when I think of patients with right to left shunt with high PA pressures, um, we like to know what the systemic pressures are too. Remember, these are two circuits that happen in, in parallel. And for this, you're actually connecting them so they become more complicated. So you might have affected the PVR in some way and did you reverse your shunt and now your QPQS is greater than one where at the beginning it was less than one. So changes with vascular resistances, we'll use this a lot for our congenital patients in the ICU when they might come in really sick as their SBR is dropping, they might shunt in one direction and we'll utilize medications in certain ways to change just the, the resistances, which are separate than just changing your pressures. So thinking about that, um, and that's I thought that was a really nice part of the case. Yeah, it'd be fun to come to your lab for a little bit. I love this and do it, do it in real time. It must be fun to work through each case. This is bringing me back to um, ACS rounds with Allison. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. I, like it. I would so, right on by when I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> So we can, I think our listeners are going to take a lot from this and learn a bunch from the case. I know I have, and I just want to say maybe we can reiterate one key point so that they can revisit it. I think my key takeaway point is what, something you said, Steve, I love looking at the RA to wedge ratio for our pH patients and feel like it's an important measure that we uh, often overlook in our right heart casts. What about you, Monty? Anything that you're taking away? 
I mean, I think Allison did a fantastic job of reviewing some basic physiological principles for us today. And one other key point that I'm remembering today is the three indications for vasoreactivity testing and pH, as Steve mentioned. So the three distinct reasons why we would want to do this is if we are concerned for pulmonary hypertension due to one of the following three etiologies, one being idiopathic, two being anorexigen induced, and three being heritable pH. Well, Allison? I will say that it's a collaborative process. We'll go with that route from cardiology and pulmonary. And we can get a lot of data and it's more about the communication of the data that you need. Um, I loved how Steve was talking about looking at all the pressure tracings. I'm a firm believer in that. But when we have that conversation and know what we're looking for upfront before the cath, and then if we need to do any maneuvers during the cath, I think that is where we can really shine to get the best assessment and kind of um, be able to define these really fun circuits and systems. And Steve, wrapping up with you. Yeah, I, I fully agree with what Allison said. And uh, since I call her with my questions uh, about the QPQS and these weird hookups that sometimes I see on the adult side uh, of, of pulmonary hypertension, uh, I'm glad that she's a resource there. But I do think uh, understanding what you're measuring in the individual patient is key to make sure that you are getting the right testing protocols and you're able to interpret the data. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. Make sure you tune in for our next episode and we will have more stuff about pulmonary hypertension uh, coming soon.